All right, I'm going to ask you actually to raise your hand when I ask this question. How many of you would rather be here in church than in the hospital? I think that's a unanimous decision. Now, in one sense, a church and the hospital are the same. They both deal with sick people. The difference is in the hospital, they have to run a bunch of tests to figure out what's wrong with you. And Jesus already knows. When it comes to church, oftentimes we come for many reasons. Sometimes we come because there's family and we want to see those either who are related to us biologically or because we're so close to them as brothers and sisters that we just want to see them. Some of us attend church because it's what we're supposed to do. We've been taught that we're supposed to go to church. Some of us like to go to really big churches because a lot of big things are happening with a lot of talented people. And it just seems like God's doing something, whether he is or isn't. That's... Or some of us like to go to smaller churches because of the intimate relationship and the people know you and they know whether you're here or not. However, have you ever thought about when you missed church that you maybe have missed the opportunity to be with Jesus? Or maybe even if you came to church that you missed the opportunity to be with Jesus. So many times we think it's the happenings that cause us to have that feeling. But the scriptures say, wherever two or three are gathered in his name, there he is. That could be at a Bible study. That could be at a mega church. Or that can be at just a really small town church with a few people. I've heard people say how much they like certain pastors or certain TV evangelists. Uh, some of you have been kind to say that you like the messages and, and that's nice that you do, but ultimately that's not the point. Isn't it though sad that when we leave, we either do not say, you know, I wasn't with Jesus today. Or we go out rejoicing, I was with Jesus today. Now we choose churches sometimes based on, again, bigness or smallness, our preference of the type of music or, or how wonderful the pastor and his sermons or his personality is. Some of us go to churches who preach hellfire and damnation and repentance and you need to be saved. Which is, a, and I'm not criticizing that, that is a good and necessary thing. There's like the hymn that says, those of us who know the story so well 
are thirsting and hungering just as the rest. So there's nothing wrong in essence of the fact that, that you enjoy being a part of a church that preaches the gospel. However, oftentimes the reason we like that is because we're not challenged to do anything because we say, I'm saved. I have my fire insurance. I'm not going to hell. And therefore, the rest of those poor sinners need to look out. We become, and I know we live in a city society, so you may have to ask me, especially the younger ones, when I say we tend to be pitchfork church people. That applies to that person. That applies to this person. And we never think about what applies to me. Jesus is going to go to a synagogue. He was there. But the people weren't prepared for what he had to say. So we're going to continue our imperfect look at the life and ministry of Jesus. And we find the first portion of that this week is found in Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse 12 through 17. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, this is John the baptizer. And this passage doesn't tell us, but I'll kind of fill you in. You see, John had been criticizing Herod Antipas because he divorced his wife, had his brother divorce his wife, and married his brother's wife, Herodias. And he didn't like John preaching that. And Herodias particularly didn't like it and had something against him. So he had John arrested. Now Jesus knows exactly when his time is and where he's going to be sacrificed. Now is not the time. So it says because John had been taken into custody, John had been arrested. Jesus goes to Galilee where he's naturally from and he's going to leave Judea. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, originally Jesus, while he was born in Bethlehem and then being warned in a dream by Joseph, they took him to Egypt and then he came back to the nation. Joseph was a bit concerned because of the leadership. He then went back to his previous home of Nazareth, and that's where Jesus was raised. But at this point, Jesus decides to change locations. He's going to have a different residential address. He's going to have a different ministry base. So he goes to Capernaum, which is a seaside town by the Sea of Galilee, and they believe there are about 1,500 people lived there. A number of the disciples were fishermen, and they were in this area. But in conformity with the prophecies, it says that the Messiah would do this. It says for the Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see that Jesus 
begins his preaching ministry, taking up where John had been preaching. John had been preaching that you need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So the time is of the essence. You don't have time to wait to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus continues John's ministry. Then if you will turn to Luke chapter 4, we'll start with verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Luke tells us something that ought to be obvious. That Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit. Jesus doesn't do anything except in the power of the Spirit. He says, I do what I see the Father doing, and that is what I do. So Jesus is led, directed, and lives his life under the power of the Spirit. We even sing a song that says, the same power lives in me. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So Jesus was an itinerant preacher, an itinerant rabbi. He would go throughout and perform various signs and wonders and miracles. But he would go to the synagogues to teach and to preach. It's something he did on a regular basis. He didn't hang out in Capernaum to say, y'all come to me. He went throughout to teach and to preach. And during one of these circuits early on, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as he was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. You see, this isn't something aberrant to Jesus. As a child, Jesus attended the synagogue. As an adult, Jesus attended the synagogue. As a child, Jesus went to Jerusalem during the holy days. As an adult, Jesus went to Jerusalem during the holy days. You see, this wasn't something he did because he was supposed to. It was something that was a part of who he is. I suspect Mary never had to wake him up to get him to go to synagogue. And I'm impressed that he attended synagogue, and I'll tell you why. The whole world doesn't have that big an appreciation of my ability to speak, but I do. And when I hear, when I go to other churches, which is one of the most difficult things that I do sometimes, and I don't do it well, I have a really hard time. Because they usually say something that just irritates me. And I bite my tongue. And fortunately, when I go to a service, you know, it's inappropriate to stand up and say, you're an idiot. You know, you, you just sit there and take it. And I appreciate you sitting there and taking it. I remember, and I shared this the other day, I went to a, an, another church in a, a, a city in uh, the deep south. And I told my wife before we went, because we went to Sunday school, I said, I'm not going to say anything. And I sat there as the teacher taught. 
and I bit my tongue, and I did my tongue. And finally he said something, and I, it was either to say something or bite my tongue off. And, you know, and so I'm sure if I had this attitude, I can imagine Jesus who wrote the scriptures, who knows the scriptures, who knows when these idiots are idiots, still goes to synagogue. Because who else is going to lead them in the right path, even when the people are idiots? So he goes. So my suggestion to you, keep coming even when there's idiots. Maybe you can change their mind. So he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now I'm sure he probably read a little more, but this is what's captured. We find this in Isaiah chapter 61. I suggest you write that down, and you might want to take a look at the chapter before chapter 61, which is 60, and the chapter after 61, which is 62. It talks about, in essence, how God is going to bless Israel. Now even foreigners are going to come and build walls and do things, and it's going to be a wonderful time, and Jesus is saying, I'm the guy. He reads this passage and says, I'm the one to bring the good news. The Spirit has anointed me to do so. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, he didn't sit down because most of us think, okay, he, that was his part of the service. He read the scriptures, and then he sat down in a pew. Nope. Their custom was when you read the scriptures, you stand up. When you comment on the scriptures, you sit down. There will be churches today who, when, when the pastor reads the scriptures or whatever, everybody stands up, and then everybody sits back down. But usually the pastor still stays standing. Unless you get so old that it's hard to stand, so you sit somewhere. And that may happen to me or whatever, I don't uh, but he's going to now comment on what he read. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. What is his comment going to be? They're interested in what he has to say. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying the person Isaiah was talking about is me, and you heard it first. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. It doesn't tell us the rest of what Jesus says, 
It just gives us this snippet because this is what we need at this particular time. We don't need to know all of what Jesus' comments are. But at this point, they're thinking they're pretty good. We like the sermon. And notice their commentary. Is this not Joseph's son? First off, my first comment is, notice everybody talks that somehow Joseph died really early or something. Notice they said, is this not Joseph's son? They did not say, was this not Joseph's son? Which tends to tell me Joseph's alive. So why don't we talk about Joseph? Because he's irrelevant to the story. It's about Jesus. It's not about Joseph. Possibly he passed away. Possibly he decided. My job that God gave me was to see that he was raised to manhood. Now it's his father's doing. And I'll take care of the rest of the family. But whatever, whether he passed away or he simply stayed in Nazareth to do what he did, it's not Joseph's gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. But notice, is this not Joseph's? Son? Wait a he didn't go to seminary. He's not one of the big uppity do Pharisees. He's a carpenter's son. How could he know such? But don't we do the same thing at home? How could God give such wisdom to that person? Did they go to seminary? And I've gone to seminary. It was okay. I learned a whole lot more by reading the scriptures and doing other things. Some of the people that I have thought were the wisest in the word of God hardly had a formal education. Because they took the word of God seriously. And so because Jesus didn't come from the background, they would expect Jesus to come from. This is pretty amazing. And his response, and he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And then he's going to make another, but I want to comment on this one first. There is something that's said to him on the cross, which is not exactly the same. They say, he saved others, let him save himself. But I think what Jesus is saying here is, you healed the lame, you healed the blind, you healed the demon-possessed, you did a whole lot of healing, you're sick. Heal yourself. Rather than admitting that Jesus is who he is, they decided on the three options. You know what the three options are. Either he is the son of God, or two, he knows he's not the son of God, but is the biggest liar. Or three, he really thought he was the son of God, and he wasn't. In essence, that's what they're saying. You're crazy because you think you're the son of God. And then he says, whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here 
in your hometown as well. They're going to say, well, wait a minute, you moved to Capernaum. That's where your center of your ministry is going to be. And we've heard a lot of things that are happening. And in the following weeks, we're going to talk about some of the healings of things that happen in Capernaum. And they're going to say, well, why don't you do those things here? And without commenting and saying why, in essence, the answer is, because Jesus doesn't do miracles for miracles' sake. He does miracles when it will glorify God, and he does miracles when it will create faith in those who are seeking it. He doesn't do it to entertain. But that's what the people of Nazareth will want. Entertainment. Not to produce faith. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. We live that today. People who are experts are people you don't know who have a briefcase who come and say, I wrote a book and therefore you're impressed with them. And that happens in the secular world and that happens in the religious world. Sometimes I think, and I've been encouraged to write a book. And part of the reason to write a book is so that I become an expert. But the problem is, even if I become an expert, as it says, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. So, yeah, Joe, yeah, he wrote that book. He's not that great. The prophet is without honor in his own hometown. We do that today. One of the most tragic things that happens in the church is that young people are raised in our church. And the ones who actually become believers, not the ones who go off and then get derailed because they only came to church because their parents made them, but the ones who become committed believers, instead of being able to minister at their home church, they have to leave and go to someplace else. Because that's little Johnny. Johnny used to be in my Sunday school. And he used to cause all kinds of problems. And that's Susie. And Susie would yell and scream and whatever. So obviously she couldn't be used by God. And so the people who don't know anything about your past go and you have to then go minister in other churches. That's wrong. Now, I will say that it's unusual that this church called me as your pastor. Because I grew up here. I've been here since I was 12 or 13. And I'm a lot older now. I think I'm 14 or 15. And so you're to be commended that you broke with tradition. But then again, a lot of you broke with tradition because it's like, well, let him lead. It's better than nobody being here. But we need to encourage our young people to not only grow in the Lord, but to minister right here at home. But Israel did worse than that. Not only did they not honor the prophet, they killed them. Then after they killed them and buried them, they talked about how great they were. Kind of like having roast pastor after Sunday service. But I say to you, verse 25, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah 
when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, and when famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Nahum the Syrian. Now Jesus really hits them. He goes, the re- he doesn't explain it, but he tells us the, and they should know enough of the, of the scripture to say, the reason that it did not rain for three years and six months is because the heart of the people of God were far from him. And when God said, you act that way, it won't rain. And he told Elijah to pray that it not rain. So it didn't. And God sent him to a brook called Kidron and the pros to ravens to provide for him. And he would drink until the drought got so severe that even the brook dried up. So God sends Elijah not to a widow or anyone else in Israel, but to a Gentile. Jesus is saying, Nazareth, your heart is far so far from God. God's not doing anything with you. He's sending the blessings elsewhere. And he tells them, Elisha told Nahum to dip seven times. And the reason he did it because he wanted people to know that there is a prophet of God in Israel. But the blessing came to a Gentile, not an Israel. I think sometimes the reason that we like to go to churches where things are happening or we go to churches where our friends are there because we don't really want to hear when God says, and you need to change. And your heart is far from me. Much better when we say, wasn't that a great sermon? He talked about everybody else and missed me. In this message, the people in that synagogue understood what Jesus was saying. But the sad thing is, instead of saying, Jesus, you're right. Our hearts are far from the God. Show us how to repent. Show us how to walk in the ways of the Lord. They have a different response. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They weren't convicted. They were angry. But sometimes maybe when you go and hear a message and you're angry rather than convicted, maybe you ought to pray to be convicted. And they got up and drove him out of the city. But that wasn't good enough. And led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. 
It wasn't good enough to just reject Jesus' teachings. They had to kill him. And one way that was equivalent to a stoning is to throw a person off a cliff. But first off, it's not Jesus' time. And second off, it's not how God had decreed that Jesus would be sacrificed. I see such sadness here. The town of Nazareth, where Joseph and Mary had grown up. The town of Nazareth, where Jesus had grown up. Where even as a 12-year-old in Jerusalem, he astonished people at his wisdom. And instead of being... melted by their heart because of they know who he is. They reject him knowing who he is. Now, Jesus will tell us later, don't be surprised that the world hates you as they hate me first. And don't be surprised when the world rejects your testimony about who Jesus is, because the people you think who knew him best not only rejected him, sought to kill him. As I started out this message, whether we realize it or not, when at least two or three of us gather here for the reason of worshiping him and learning from him and being with him. He's here. And while we don't have the opportunity, if we're upset at him, to seek to throw him off a cliff, we do the next best thing. We ignore him. Oh, that applied to somebody else. Or, Pastor, you hit a little too close to home today. Um, Pastor didn't hit too close to home. The Spirit did. Or, our response could be, I wish church was gone a little longer because I could have been with him more. I could have sat at his feet. He could have been next to me in the pew. I could have worshipped him and praised him and learned of him. And he performs a miracle in their midst. And I'm, I'm sure they're kind of upset with. But passing through their midst, he went his way. The whole synagogue pushed him up to the brow of the hills to throw him off. And he simply walks away. 
the danger for you and me to come face to face with Jesus. And because of our response, he simply walks away. When I advise at times married couples before they get married, it's usually after they get married, they don't listen anyway, and they usually don't listen before because they're so much in love. But one of my key advice is this. Never allow your relationship to get to the point where no matter what the other person does, you don't care anymore. Usually the men are the one who screw up, so I'll use the men as the one who screws up. So the wife will be upset at what he does because he screws up. He apologizes, and rather than change, whatever, and then a few months, year, whatever, he does the same thing. He seeks forgiveness and whatever. And then there comes a time when the, she just doesn't care. And you can change, but it's too late. Because she just doesn't care. God has an infinite capacity to forgive. An infinite mercy. But all too often people think, I can wait till another time. And the problem is, Jesus simply walks away. So with the fact that Jesus is here, because I suspect there is at least two or three of us who have gathered in his name. He wants more of your relationship with him than we have. If you don't have a relationship with him, he wants to develop that relationship. And since he's here today, there's no better time to start that relationship than now. There's no better time to make that relationship more rich, rich and deeper than now. There's no better time to reconcile that relationship if you felt you've walked away than now. Don't let him walk away. For Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes through the Father except through him. And all God's people said.
now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all the church said, Amen.
song right now if there ever were a theme song for someone like me this is it we've all got ours right here it is
Oh. 